Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and moms around the world. This way that we talk about other people to bond is also a way to make ourselves feel a little better. And that part of our brain that judges others is doubly hard on ourselves and judges us. And so we spend all our time thinking, I'm not worthy, I'm not this, I'm not that. But if we can shut down that part of our brain completely, then that shame and that guilt will slowly dissipate. Hi, everybody. Oh, boy. Uh, I held off on doing this intro uh, because I thought I'd have my voice back, but I don't. Um, And that's okay. I'm glad I held off because I have something I want to talk to you guys about. Did you guys stay up for the Oscars Sunday night? Um, Even if you didn't, you must have seen what happened when Best Picture was announced. You know, in our December episode of Atomic Moms uh, with my husband, we mentioned that we're friends with the producer of La La Land. We've known Julie and Jordan for almost 10 years. Julie and I are birthday buddies. And uh, they have a little toddler, Arthur, who makes a fabulous appearance in the film. And last night, uh, we got to watch him make a, a beautiful acceptance speech. And he dedicated it to his wife, Julia, who, by the way, does have the bluest eyes on the planet, um, and to his little guy. And then something crazy happened. So while the other producers were giving thanks, you could notice this, like, chaos on stage. And we watched Jordan Horowitz and those around him find out that the award wasn't theirs. The trophy in his hand wasn't his. And the most remarkable thing happened. In a moment of utter confusion and the biggest feelings, we saw Jordan Horowitz, toddler dad, take the reins. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. Guys. This is uh, very unfortunate what happened. I would like to see you get an Oscar anyway. Why can't we just give out a whole bunch of them? I'm going to be really proud to hand this to my friends from Moonlight. That's nice of you. That's very nice. He explained what happened clearly and with authority and with artistic generosity that I feel so lucky to have witnessed. He stayed in the moment. He stayed out of his own ego. And he called the Moonlight cast on stage and he hugged them all. Parents, we are the producers at home. We are the leaders. I've got a little sparkling Emma Stone of my own. God, I don't know. Pregnancy hormones. (sighs) She's three. And that's who the spotlight's on. But in moments of confusion, we're the ones to rise up, right? And we calmly speak the truth, and we do it with an open heart, and we right the ship. In that chaos on stage, it looked like people were drowning. There was a guy with a, he was like a stage manager or something. He was running around looking for the envelope. Another guy threw in the towel. And there was Jordan saying to all of us watching, I've got you. This is going to be okay. You don't need to worry about me or my feelings. Here's the situation. And let's focus our attention not on what just happened, but what is happening in this very moment. 
which is a very deserving film, Moonlight is getting this award. Today, I have another leader like that on Atomic Moms. I've seen her handle children flailing in the water with the same authority and grace. There is no worry on her face, only trust. Selena Willows is the founder of Swim to Selena. It's a specialized program she created based on her extensive experience as a swim instructor and lifeguard. So she first started teaching swimming lessons when she was 14 years old, and she's been an instructor for all Red Cross certification levels, including lifeguard certification. She has managed swim programs and developed curriculums for local community centers and boarding schools, and was the head lifeguard at a military summer camp for almost 10 years, where she was responsible for the safety of more than 500 swimmers every day. In addition, during this time, she created and taught a course on cold water survival techniques. See? Y'all, I always get the best. Selena is also an NASM certified personal trainer as well as a certified nutrition coach with Precision Nutrition. She is currently working on her first mindset coaching program, which will launch March 13th, 2017. That's coming up. So this episode's in two parts. Part one could save your child's life. Part two, we're going to talk about how Selena lost 100 pounds, and she's going to give us some really fantastic tools that can help us out in our own lives this week. Okay, everybody, we're the leaders. We're calm, steady, self-assured. I'll be right back with Selena. Hi, everybody. I'm back with Selena in our studio. I still don't have my voice. Yay. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we did a really fun interview with the author of It's Okay Not to Share and It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, Heather Shoemaker. And we talked about water and kind of how much it freaks me out. Uh, And so I decided, you know, we've only done like 120 podcasts. It's about time we jump in uh, into the pool. And so my guest today, Selena, she came into my life last fall. Uh, it was about time that Sabrina start taking swim classes. And a couple moms were raving uh, about this woman. And so I signed Sabrina up and uh, a very long list that we will talk about in a moment arrives in the email um, of the do's and don'ts for the parents. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Let's, we'll figure this out. But it's an immer- it's a total immersion, um, metaphorically and physically, uh, for our children because it's every single day, I think for a week and a half, I'll get the logistics from Selena now. But the experience was so eye-opening for me. I had taken Sabrina to soccer uh, when she was really little. I took her to like a kid gym place for stuff. Um, I've taken her to dance. And it's always been fun to watch. But this felt, this is so weird to say, it felt like a spiritual experience um, for me and for my child. And just that week and a half of watching her, um, Oh, man. And just like all the barriers she was able to break through and how she was able to surpass like any expectations one might have of a, I think she was, she had just turned three. Um, it it was just really, really remarkable. And it the things that I picked up from watching Selena in the pool with the children, like I have taken 
on as a parent. Um, it's sort of like my daily practice of trying to be a better mom. And uh, I just, I, I couldn't get over it. And I kept sitting there and being like, oh my God, I have to have her as a guest on the show. I have to have her as a guest on the show. And it was hitting fall and it was like her last session of the season. I was like, well, we'll just have to do round two in the spring uh, and I'll ask her on then. And so, yes, uh, a lot of the country is still under snow, but many people are headed for spring break and a lot of parents are asking about where to send their kids uh, to swim class. And so I wanted to have Selena on, even though she's in Studio City, which is near L.A., um, and many of you are not able to go to Selena, I think we can still pick up a lot of tips from her, uh, not only in the pool, but as parents. And I think it might be helpful for uh, those of you who are looking into a program. So uh, that is the longest ramble ever, but it was very heartfelt and Sudafed-driven. Uh, so Selena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ali. I'm over here and my heart is so full with the things you said. So now that we've been warm and fuzzy, let's just scare the hell out of the parents. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about water safety first. And I remember you saying in class that at a certain, you know, however many seconds kids are in the water, they give up trying to swim. So let's start with that terrifying statistic. That is a terrifying one. Um, so an adult's brain will have them stop fighting in about a minute. Um, so when a person is submerged and they are in a drowning situation, an adult will fight for about a minute before their brain shuts down and gives in. Um, a child, it only takes 20 seconds. And 20 seconds, I mean, that's shorter Nothing. than... Going to answer the phone. I've had cough sessions this week that are longer than 20 seconds. Right, right. 20 so you seconds. turn your back for two, for 20 seconds. 20 seconds. And it's over. And it's over. And the child <sighs> is not fighting anymore. And to top this off, um, many people think that drowning looks like splashing and chaos and yelling for help. The truth is, is that none of those things happen when a child is drowning. The child's brain doesn't allow them to scream because they are looking for air. It doesn't allow them to thrash about. It's silent and it's calm. And I can't tell you how many children I have pulled out of the pool right next to their parents. Now I'm totally freaked. Sorry. No, it's important though. I keep hearing stories about kids at parties and it's like that has like I cannot shake it. Um, I keep hearing about, you know, it's like everyone was gathered around the child with the birthday cake. And meanwhile, another kid fell in the pool. Right. So when we are in a new environment, what are your recommendations for parents besides, you know, just like putting a leash on the kid? <laughs> uh, leashes could be helpful. Um <laughs> I guess in this case, it's a constant supervision of the doors, knowing where your children are at all times, double-checking the gates. If you are a homeowner with a pool, making sure that you have a gate around your pool that has an alarm on it. So not only the gate, the gate that locks, but a gate that if opened, you can hear it. That's genius. I never would have thought right. of that. Doors, right? We all have alarm systems in our houses, or a lot of us do. Uh, set that chime on. So that you can hear when a door opens. 
yeah. you can do a quick scan of where are all the kids. Yep. Right? Um, oh, my God. I had a mom fail just the other week where Sabrina wanted – Adam had gone out to take the trash out, and she's three and a half, and she'd figured out the lock on the front door, and she went out front, and it was dark. And I go, Sabrina, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm brave, Mom. And I was like, huh. <laughs> oh, my God, I got to get a lock on the top of that door. Right, right. Um, so I have uh, locks on all the gates, and I have an alarm system that chimes when the doors open. And what do you do if you're in a, at a birthday party and everyone's in the pool? Hmm. You know, one of those scenarios. You stay at arm's reach of your child at all times. Your yeah. eyes are the best security system your child can have eyes on your child at all times. And I know that that's hard, and a lot of parents don't want to get in the pool. Right. A lot of parents are like, let's just chill on the side of the pool and I'll watch. Right. You or we want to catch up with our friends. Right. We want to catch up with our friends. And we wanna, but here's the thing. Even if you're sitting on the side of the pool with your feet in the water, the time it takes for you to turn around and grab your glass of wine mm-hmm. or your drink or whatever, and then you turn around and look at the pool and you can't spot your child anymore, mm-hmm. and the time it takes you to find your child in the water or not, in panic, mm-hmm. that 20 seconds is over. Okay. So I need a drink. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> but not near a body of water with my child. <laughs> so one of the coolest things I saw you do with the kids, and I'm sure a lot of children come to you who have had bad water experiences. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of kids that are scared of water. Um, you have them sort of... Mark the perimeter of the pool. Can we talk about that for a second? We can. Um, I just want to address one other thing. Just yeah. sort of because this. Mm-hmm. They had a little incident. Um, now, with all this talk of drowning in the 20 seconds, it can make a parent crazy, right? right. So the second we see our child go under, we panic. And then we pull that child up. And we are panicked, and therefore they are panicking, right? Same thing happens with um, children around pools. We're constantly grabbing them and saying, don't play so close. Don't go so Mm -hmm. close to the pool. Um, You're too close. Don't lean over the pool, right? And we're constantly feeding them this bit of insecurity that we have about the water. And so when it comes time for them to learn to swim, they have all these insecurities that are not their own, that were put on them. And so... Finding a balance between that is really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I have new children in my class, one of the first things we do is I have them learn where the air is. So the air is all around the pool with your hands on the side. It is the stairs, the benches. It is the places they can reach and the places they can pull themselves up. And so we start with that because that is those are all the places they will return to at any given time. And to go back – to the fear for one second, in that email I alluded to at the beginning, um, your, my interpretation, because also I always read people's emails, like this is uh, one of my quirks. I think probably a lot of mothers share it. Uh, I have like a, like a certain like bitchy voice that I'll read emails in with like do's and don'ts and that kind of stuff. And it was sort of my interpretation of what you wrote was like, parents, you're going to sit your butt you know, you're in the background. I'm, I'm top dog and don't interfere. And yes, you say it in a much kinder way, but this is how I read it, right? Sit your butt on the side of the pool, keep your mouth shut, watch your child. Let me do my thing. Do not, 
uh, comment. Do not run over. Don't um, don't interject yourself. And it was awesome. I, I, that first day, I was like, oh, my God, this woman is Caesar Milan. And to watch three small children uh, and to watch Sabrina at the time, now she's, she's matured so much, and I can't wait to watch her jump back in the pool with you. Um, but just that first day, the way she was able to lock eyes with you and uh, the sort of like energetic connection you have with the three children in the pool. So for listeners, Selena's in the pool, and what, what's the most children you have in three. the pool? Three. You have three kids in the pool, which, by the way, for children who've never learned how to swim, that seems like a big deal. And they all, they like grip onto the side of the pool, and they wait their turn, and uh, they each swim out to Selena, and you tell them to keep their eyes open. But the coolest thing is when they've sputtered, um, there was one little boy in Sabrina's class who was having a hard time. He didn't want to kick. You know, Sabrina thinks she's a mermaid, so she was cool. She was, like, swimming across the pool. Like, it was insane to me. Like, by day three, I was like, how – like, it's incredible what our children are able to do when we don't set the limits on them and we give them the, like, appropriate boundaries and let them feel safe to, like, really, you know, soar. But this one child was um, – he was really scared, and there were some tears. And when he would succeed, when he was able to swim all the way to Selena – um, and she would lift him up. She would look, make eye contact with him, and she would say, "Did you do it? Did you do it?" And sort of the pride that you could feel, like welling up in that child's chest, it just was so beautiful. And so that is the, like the big thing that I've taken from Selena. Like, you know, at least. I want to say every day, every couple days, if Sabrina has done something new, um, I'll instead of saying like a good job or you did it, I'll say, did you do it? And in that way, when she says I did it, she gets to fully own that victory. Yes. So what do you see in parents that is like frustrating or annoying or how are they getting in their children's way? Oh, wow. Uh, that's a really <laughs> great question. So let me just tell you that that email that you get, mm -hmm. the first draft of it sounded exactly like you read it. <laughs> because as parents, and I do this too, I do this too. We want the absolute best for our children and we want to take all their pain away. We do, right? We don't want them to suffer. We don't want them to hurt. If they're crying, we want to make it better. It's in our DNA, right? It's ingrained in us. And so part of that email is very much that parents need to take a step back. Because allowing your child to accomplish something is a huge deal for their self-esteem, for their self-worth, and it applies throughout their lives, later on as adults too. And swimming is one of those things that children can learn very quickly if people get out of their way. I often say that I don't so much teach as I facilitate. I provide a safe environment where kids are empowered and they get to learn how to swim. They get to teach themselves how to swim. I guide them, but I do very little instruction, very little kick your legs or, you know, mm -hmm. breathe out or blow bubbles or very little instruction. And there's not a bunch of stupid toys. There's no toys. There's no toys until later, until way later. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I also want to say 
um, that you you're, you're like do not do the you know not safety jackets but like the little like floaties don't no. do those things and why should we not do so those? no floaties no goggles no flippers none of that stuff so the floaties are particular in that they create a false sense of security for both the child and the parent um, and the child is not learning to swim in the appropriate position. It puts them in a more vertical position, which is not how we swim. That's how we drown. Uh, trying to keep our head up is how children drown. They need to learn to put their face in the water and swim horizontally. So the all those little puffy things that yeah. help them float, the floaties and all the their little, little accessories. chest band things and all that stuff. Even the bathing suits that have the yeah. – the foam in them mm-hmm. and the belts, all those things are just creating a false sense of security, right? This is where parents say, well, she's got her floaties on. I'm going to go answer the phone. Yeah. Or sign this check at the or, hotel or, pool. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like I just got to, it's, she'll be fine. Um, or he'll be fine. And uh, so those floaties are just absolutely a no go. Um, not in my class and not after they've taken my class. Once they've mm-hmm. taken my class, that's it. There's no more. I do. I spend a lot of my time correcting position because of floaties. Mm. And you also talk about the communication, like this idea that when a child is going to swim to you, they need to say, mommy, yes. are you ready for me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the yeah. goggles and the flippers. Oh, yeah. Let's go yeah. back to it. So the goggles and the flippers create a sense where a child says, I need my to swim. I need my goggles. I need my special bathing suit, yeah. my whatever it is, right? I need my I need my lovey, mm-hmm. right? And so if they're constantly swimming with goggles and one day they fall in the pool, their brain is not going to say, I know what to do. Their brain is going to say, oh, my God, my goggles, right? And that's (laughs) not what we want. We want a child to be able to move themselves in the water, get back to the side, do what they need to do Mm -hmm. to get to a safe place. Mm -hmm. And about getting back to the side, and this is my – I'm curious if some parents have freaked out because you – and I don't know if other teachers do this, but you have them sit – this is like day five, maybe four. Sit on the edge of the pool. Uh, they're back to the pool, or you, you and they you throw them in, right? And yes. they have to find the edge of the pool. So they're totally disoriented because they've been thrown in, like flip flopped. I mean, and you like throw them, yes. Like it's a great workout. It's the best part of my session every time and it's amazing to watch i could not believe that sabrina could orient herself that quickly and paddle back and grab the edge of the pool and lift herself up right so all the days preceding when we do that um are all training for that moment right going underwater we spend almost three days just getting them used to the feeling of water on their face Right. And that's mm-hmm. where the tears stop. Once that stops, then we can actually get into the work. And everything I do from the beginning is to help them keep from panicking. And so when I get to the part where I am throwing them in and I am throwing them in the pool. Yeah. By the way, parents, which, like right. Adam went to one class and I think uh, – and then at the end, he, he the last day you let the parents swim. Went, yes. But I think that one day I, he was – it really turned his stomach. I, yeah, mean, I it, thought it was amazing. <laughs> it's funny because I have so much anxiety about so many things, but I think that also is a testament to uh, how much I trust you as a teacher and just as a person that it was awesome to watch her do like basically flips into the water 
and then find the edge. And you and you saw the buildup of it too, right? right? He there showed you up, go. and all of a sudden, I'm throwing Hilarious. his daughter in the water when right. five days ago she couldn't swim, and he's right. going, "What is going on?" Right? right? Totally. Um, yeah. So there's there's a lot of buildup to that that uh, that's important, right? We don't just turn around. And right. That's not how we teach. That's not how we teach children to swim. We do not right. throw them in the deep end and say, "Figure it out," right? right? Um, there's a whole process. A whole process. Do you have there been parents totally freaking out at that moment? No. No. By that By point, cool. uh, everybody has seen what their child is capable of. And uh, and there, there have been moments where some children are ready for it and some aren't. Mm-hmm. And um, what I do is very personalized to mm-hmm. each child. I may have them all in the same class and it may look like it's all they're all doing the same thing, but they're not. Mm-hmm. The force with which I throw one is not the same as the force with which I throw mm-hmm. another. Uh, the distance I ask one to swim is not the same as the distance I ask another to swim. And everything's very tailored to each individual child. And by the time the parents get to where we're throwing the kids in, I mean, they're just so in awe that this is another moment where they're like, oh, my goodness. I mm-hmm. yeah, I can't believe my child's able to do this. Right? So it's um, it's fun for me, too. It, it really uh, it speaks to my soul. I love doing it. When we come back, we're going to talk to Selena about personal empowerment, uh, about losing 100 pounds. At one point, uh, you were 280 pounds. We're going to talk about, God, we're going to talk about shame. We're going to talk about resilience. Uh, We're going to, we've done the kid work, right? And now we're about to dig into all the mom stuff. We'll be right back on Atomic Moms. Okay, and we are back with Selena. So during our little break, uh, we're freezing in this garage studio, but I don't want to turn on the heat because of the sound. Uh, Sorry, Selena. Um, I asked her if she's ever concerned about like throwing out the kids like necks or backs when when she does do the toss into the pool. Um, And of course, she had a fantastic answer, which is... Uh, well, I actually taught gymnastics for over 10 years. I'm a certified gymnastics coach. And so there are some things like that that I, I know how to spot a child and how to hold a child in order to help them rotate in the air and stuff. Yeah. So parents, maybe don't, you know, don't throw your kids in yourself without knowing how to appropriately <laughs> do it. Um, and, uh, and I thought that was, I had no idea that you did that as well. It's pretty yeah. cool to see. Um, and through your bio also as well to see sort of the different threads of your life coming into this one uh, one career slash life purpose. Um, your blog, selenawillows.com, you have the tagline, Live Life on Purpose. And I'm wondering if you could share a little, just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit about what that means to you, to live life on purpose. To me, that means to use the good china, to not save things for a special occasion, because today is special. I live every day on purpose. This business of doing what you should and doing what you have to do and all the uh, stress and the things we put on ourselves, um, some of those things, a lot of those things are not necessary. You know, um, I'm going to share something with you. My kids, they don't get baths every night. Do you know why? Because I don't want to. And it's okay. 
you know, it's okay. I've let go of bathing them daily. I've also let go of keeping my floors pristine because those are not the things that are important in life. Is there one ritual that you do with your family, like on a daily or weekly basis, that just fills up your heart? We have tea time every night after dinner. We make a pot of tea and we sit down and we have tea time. What do you talk? You just talk about. We just stuff? talk. We talk about our days. You know, uh, we often have to ask the kids if they have any questions. If anything came up that day, I'm trying to foster an environment where they can always come to me and ask anything they want, no matter how absurd or scary or embarrassing they may feel it may be. They can ask us anything, and they will get a serious, honest response. To their level of understanding, obviously, Um, amongst uh, my husband and I, the rule is that if they are old enough to ask the question, they are old enough for the answer. And so that means that I don't elaborate any further, but if I'm asked where babies come from, they get the answer where babies come from. I don't go further unless they ask, but how, or, Mm -hmm. right, unless they ask more. Um, But yeah, so we use that tea time to talk about our days to talk about our feelings, to ask questions. Which sounds pretty revolutionary from uh, the way that you were raised. Yes. So going back, um, you know, on your blog, and by the way, as a former blogger myself, I'm very mm, sensitive to the fact that, you know, writing our stories is very different from sharing it. Uh, you know, <clears throat> on a podcast or just speaking it out loud. Um, there's a safety in writing it. Um, and I was, uh, I, I really, I'm trying to stop using words like blown away, but I, I was blown away by your honesty in this blog um, and your openness to share your struggles. And so, while you were growing up, um, you were diagnosed with cystic ovarian – oh, no. Polycystic, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Ovarian syndrome, uh, which leads to weight gain, or that's one of the main symptoms, right? Yeah. One of many. You know, you've had trauma uh, three times. Mm-hmm. I mean, sexually assaulted, yep. And you found comfort in food. I did. I found great comfort in food. Uh Food was a place where I could just sit quietly and and enjoy it. And there was, um, I had control over it. Mm -hmm. It was something I could control. And also it was interesting that it was yours. You talk about, you know, with being raised, how many siblings again? Uh, So I have five siblings. So five siblings Um, and the idea that. There just wasn't enough of the good stuff in your house and that you wanted to get it when you could. Yeah. And then that was so, so this like idea of scarcity of like right, right. The brothers are going to take my food if I don't get it for myself. Right. Uh, so to be clear, I mean, you know, I never, ever did not have enough to eat right. growing up. Like that was never my experience. There was always food in the house. Um, but if mom bought peaches— there was a limited amount of peaches, and there were always apples and oranges. When you get sick of apples and oranges and there's a peach in the house, you want to eat it. 
And growing up with two older brothers, um, that kind of food, the the peaches, the cold cuts, the desserts, mm-hmm. the you know, the stuff that was not a regular appearance in our house went quickly. And there was this feeling of get yours now. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, growing up, there were often post-it notes on food containers. This is so-and-so's, do not eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, it's not to say that all my siblings had the same experience with this as I did. Uh, the way I internalized this is, is very different from my siblings. Um, not from all of them, certainly, but from some of them. And for me, it was a feeling of scarcity. Mm-hmm. And as I grew older, having gone through what I did with mm-hmm. the sexual assaults, um, I had a certain amount of control over some things. And, and food was one of the things I had control over. And so I turned to it for comfort. Um, you write about, you know, needing to ask for a seatbelt extender on the plane. Um and I've never heard someone talk about the upside of being obese. And there always is, right? In whatever we're doing in life, if there's a pattern or habit, there's a reason we don't want to break it. And we're like, why can't we change? Why can't we change? And it's, there is a bonus, Can you talk a little bit about the upside of being 280 pounds? So I think uh, for me, one of the biggest bonuses, and this I've seen, you know, in some of my clients as well, um, it's kind of, I I don't want to say universal because it's not everybody, but one of the bonuses of being bigger is the ability to hide. You know, it may seem counterintuitive because you're a bigger body, but People don't pay as much attention to you when you're bigger. And so if there's a shame or guilt or a feeling of less than, being bigger enables you to to disappear into the background, to hide. Um, And often uh, people who are carrying around excess weight, uh, there is a shame around it. And and oftentimes it has nothing to do with their bodies. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes the shame is more deeply rooted. Um, for me, it was the sexual assault, and uh, it went back further than that, not understanding my body, not um, trusting my body. Mm-hmm. Because you did not grow up with the tea time. I did not grow up with tea time. Um, that's not to say that our parents didn't talk to us. It's not to say that they were hiding anything. I think that they just grew up in a different time, mm-hmm. and there were certain things you don't talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started my period, I didn't know what it was. It was 12, and I had no idea, no idea what it was. Freaking out, obviously. Um, yeah, I just, I had a, I had a, a deep-rooted distrust of my body. Mm. And which is interesting with your background in swimming and this idea that there is no more like sort of physically revealing sport. Um, did you feel uncomfortable when you were lifeguarding? Growing up in your swimsuit or? So I didn't actually start gaining weight until I hit my teens. I was uh, quite slim before that. And I never had any um, any 
body issues, to be quite honest, as far as size or anything mm-hmm. like that. I, it was not something I had ever even considered. Um, there were some little things in ballet class. I was a little bigger than the other girls, but it wasn't something that uh, weighed on me mm-hmm. ever until, um, until I was 280 pounds. Okay, so leading up to 280, it wasn't that your obsession wasn't my size, not your ever. size. You did not. That's that's so fascinating to me. I mean, as a person who probably has like just a tiny bit of body dysmorphia myself, that this and I and now I'm like, oh God, don't say that because you know that's a very serious illness, and I shouldn't compare myself to that. But but when I look in the mirror, that is something that I think of often so many size and that if I gain 20 pounds it would be devastating I imagine yeah yeah I think and that's probably because my family history there's like such an obsession on my father's side about weight Mm -hmm. and that it's this it's very much like a trophy thing I mean my grandmother my dad's mother was blind when she was like in her 60s and 70s and when I would visit her, the first thing she would do, she'd ask me how much I weighed. And she would pat, she would pretend to hug me, but she was patting my sides to see where I was. Wow. Yeah. So this idea that you could gain all of that weight and feel protected. And also, I love that you mentioned that you felt so much stronger. Yes. Yeah. So I think I think a, a lot of people suffer with, um, different levels of body dysmorphia. I mean, I think that it's more widespread than we than we want to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I I didn't have any of that until until it was a picture one day that I saw of myself, and it just blew me away. And I couldn't believe how big I was. And so when you were at 280 pounds, you met your fiancé or you were you, you were got engaged. Is that true? Yeah, we got engaged. I was at my heaviest when I got married. I was still around around 280. Um, when we met, it was a little bit smaller when we met. Um, we met in university. And over the How did you meet him when you were years, hiding? Do you know what I mean? Like, so <sighs> that's a really good question. I'm really good at my job. Uh, I see that. Um, <laughs> okay. So um, at the time when we met, um, I had gotten to a point where I was using more than food to take control. I was drinking a lot, and I was very promiscuous. And I, that was a place where I had control. And so when I met him, I never imagined that we would get married and have children and live a life together. It was the kind of attention that I could control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he just snuck up on you. So he, it started as that and then... He totally snuck up on me. Yeah. When um, did you start doing, like... I when did like that such a start? No, when did you start doing like the work? When did you start? God, because it must have been in you if he saw, you know, if you were able to uh, 
you know, rise up to the occasion of meeting your soulmate. How did you, when did So I started doing the physical work, mm. the weight loss, um, after we were married. I went to see a doctor and uh, he told me that I was really sick. Mm. How yeah. did that? T- it hit hard. Um, yeah. When he said that, what was what was your next move after that appointment? I'm not going down like this. Wow. Yep. Because I would have stopped at In and Out, and that's not even <laughs> like my go to for comfort. Although when Sabrina got vaccinated, yeah, and she's like <laughs> sobbing. The first thing I did was go through the drive through at In and Out. <laughs> I love it. Um, I love it. That was your response. Yeah, you're a fighter. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I decided that I was that this was not the way my life was going to go. Yeah, and I want to have children. Yeah, and um, I decided that I wasn't going to be the mom sitting in a car while my kids played in the park. That wasn't going to be me. So I started doing the physical work, and I lost uh, a good seventy pounds before I had my son. And then wow, yeah, and then I lost a little more between the two, and still more after my daughter was born, but the the real work, yeah, and what I call the the real actual work, uh, actually didn't start until just a few years ago. Have your family members noticed a difference, or friends from your past? Can they tell the difference, sort of, in your brightness, or did you always have it? Um, I didn't always have it. I think I had it when I was young. I think that this is who I am now is who I was. I know. Who I intended to so I was intended to be. Yep. Um, I feel the same way. Thank you. It's like, I'm like, oh, um, yeah, about you. Well, I don't know. I didn't know you as a child, but there is a light about you. And I feel like that who I was in like second grade or when I was like seven years old, like that's me now. Yes. And that's when I'm at my best. Right. So, yeah, I I mean, I think that this was always who I was intended to be. I went through a very dark period. I was very angry at the world. Yeah. And um, I don't even think I realized it at the time. Uh, But I was was not a happy person. And if I wasn't going to be happy, then nobody around me was going to be happy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how or why or what my husband saw beneath all of that. Uh, but he did, and uh, and I'm so glad he did, because without him, there's no way I could have done all the things that I'm doing now. So, how did you find attachment parenting? Uh, by accident, completely by accident. Uh, my 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 son was born in the hospital. Um, I had watched the business of being born when mm-hmm. I was like. Eight and a half months pregnant, or something. Eight months pregnant. Yeah, just and, enough time to scare the hell right, out of you, but not time, to do all the work to but make it possible. Too late to get a midwife, right? Uh, so we got a doula, yeah, and I had a hospital birth, and it was textbook. Everything went wonderfully, and they keep you in the hospital for what, two overnights or whatever yeah. it is. And he would not sleep. He would fall asleep in my arms, mm-hmm. and I would put him down in the Tupperware bin that they give you, mm-hmm. and he would start screaming. 
And I was at my wits end. And so I said to my husband, I said, he's just going to sleep next to me. That's it. He's just going to sleep in my arms. Like I need to sleep. I can't physically go on. And he needs to sleep. And this is not, this is not working. And so my husband held him for a little while. I held him for a little while and eventually fell asleep within my arms. And I remember the nurse came in at one point in the middle of the night and she said, you can't do that. We don't, we don't allow that. And I'm sure they're afraid you're going to drop the baby. Right. Or smother the baby or something. And my husband uh, sat up and said, it's okay. I'm watching them. Oh, now he had been asleep too. He just, he saw the light when the door Mm -hmm. opened and stepped in knowing that this was the Mm -hmm. only way that we were going to get any sleep. And then when we brought uh, Declan home, we, uh, we had bought one of those in bed sleepers. Mm -hmm. And those things take up a lot of room in a queen size bed. Yeah. A lot of room. And there was a space for either of us to sleep with this sleeper in the bed. And every time I put him in it, even if I had my hand on him, he would wake up screaming. And I literally launched the thing across the room. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my husband and I said, he sleeps in my arms tonight and tomorrow we look it up. Yeah. And that's what we did. And we came upon uh, Dr. Sears mm-hmm. and all that great stuff. Did you get a harder mattress? Um, you know, we didn't. Uh, we had a pretty firm mattress to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um but we followed, you know, the guidelines of not the same blankets, and right. he doesn't sleep between the two of you. Yeah, and listeners who are curious about this, you know, do your research uh, because you want to keep your baby, baby safe. Yes, yeah. And and the biggest thing that we learned was that um, studies show that if you are breastfeeding the child through the night, if you're breastfeeding mm-hmm. full time, that this is something that is safe. If this child's mm-hmm. getting a bottle and you're not breastfeeding the child. Um, is that because they're heavier sleepers then? I think it has formula? to do with the attachment oh, and the, and um, understanding where the child is in relation to you. I remember waking up and like my shoulder was sore and my mm-hmm. arm was asleep. Mm-hmm. And there was Declan sleeping on my arm. And I hadn't moved despite mm-hmm. the pain and agony I was in. I hadn't moved. And that was kind of a moment where I knew that this was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. That this was going to be safe. I kind of had the opposite <laughs> where Sabrina, uh, when she was really little, I would take, if I was lucky enough to take a nap during the day, which was so rare, um, and also probably because I had this experience, but we have a little dog named Chubbs, and he's like 15 pounds. And I took a nap, uh, and Sabrina was probably with Adam downstairs or something, and uh, I woke up from my nap, and I felt this little like warm body uh-huh. at my calf and I like threw off the comforter, you know, cause I was like terrified <laughs> that it was like, my, cause you never stop thinking about them. Right. And I was so scared <clears throat> that my dog was my baby that had somehow like <laughs> gone down in there. Um, but there's also, you know, rules about your bedding yes, um, and the blanket situation and all of that jazz. So again, parents look that up um, and, I want to ask you, in your bio, it says that you're going to have your kids sleeping with you till college. (laughs) Yeah. How Um, big is your bed now? (laughs) So that's an exaggeration. Um, We do have a king. And uh, what we've done actually is actually we've turned it sideways um, because they're longer than they are wide. Mm -hmm. So we have like a wider king than necessary. I'm imagining right now that scene in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when he goes home to his like aunts and uncles and everyone's sleeping in the same bed. Um, 
It happens rarely that all four of us are in the bed. Okay. Uh, what happens now often is, and kind of in ebbs and flows, one of them will wake up and crawl into our bed in the middle of the night. And we often allow them to fall asleep in our bed. And then so we they have their them. own bed. They absolutely but they can do. come into yours. Yeah, they absolutely do. They have their own beds. How do you keep them kicking the crap out of you? So, and this is where I would say that these kinds of things have to work for your family. Yeah. Right? I mean. I, I have an octopus. There was, a, there was a great uh, <laughs> thing I saw on Instagram recently about how sleeping with a toddler is like sleeping with an octopus. She has like 12 limbs all of a sudden. Right. She's like a Greek mythological creature. Yeah. Where you're like, how is she? Yeah. So, we, you know, we've, we've, our sleeping arrangements have morphed over the years. And then something that was working doesn't work anymore. And so we adjust. Um, for the most part now, they fall asleep in our bed. And then we move them. With the understanding that they they know when we put them down that they will not wake up there. Right. And so that's something so that we freak. make sure, yeah, that we make sure that they understand that they know you mm-hmm. will be waking up in your own bed tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you go to bed really early? No, so they that, go to bed in our bed and we're still up. Oh. Yeah, they just like to be in our bed. Uh. And so we'll move them. And then most nights, inevitably, one of them will get up and crawl between us. I'm never going to let Sabrina listen to this episode because, <laughs> like, every day that's what she wants. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. But my kids don't move around a lot, yeah. you know, and this is where I say it has to work for your family, right? I mean, if you're so bent – I mean, I had a nursery set up for Declan. Mm. I had a nursery with a cri- – like, the whole thing. Right. I did the thing that But then that you went with your instincts and you listened to your particular child. That's right. And it just didn't yeah. work for us, and I ended up using the um, crib as – a laundry hamper so that's that he awesome. couldn't unfold no, the laundry, right? Yeah. I mean, that was that was it. Yeah. Um, also never used a changing table. Really? Never. Yeah. It just didn't make sense to me to right. walk halfway across the, the house right. no, to change a diaper when I could do it right here. <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah. And so things I think have of to work. all the things that we bought for Sabrina that now with this next baby, I'm like, oh, who cares? It's incredible, right? Like, all the things that, that we're told we need. I know. I did not need that. I mean. Don't need anything. Yeah. I needed my Becco baby carrier. That's I was just going to say, you need a baby carrier and whatever your feeding method is. Right. Right? Whatever whatever yep. your feeding method is, a baby carrier. And then. You know what? I need my boobs, my therapist, and my Becco carrier. I'm good to go. Right? Exactly. Okay, you're also a fitness and nutrition coach. And so I imagine that a big aspect of it is the psychology behind why we hold ourselves back. So you write about, you know, the stories we tell ourselves. And you and I share a couple of bestsellers, okay, the, like the imposter complex and the not good enough. So can you give us an exercise so that we can sort of figure out what our story is and how to have a breakthrough? You know, not, not, no pressure there, but like give us a breakthrough homework assignment, please. So something I ask uh, all my clients to do when we first start together is to write their story. Now, um, if I see that a client is suffering more with uh, food, then we talk about food. If they're struggling more about body image, then we talk about body image. So whatever it is that they're struggling with, we write their story with it, kind of like a timeline. So in your case, I would ask you to tell me 
or to write down, and you don't, I don't even necessarily ask for them to share it with me. Mm -hmm. It's for you to make a timeline of all the times that somebody pointed something out about your body. Mm. And how far back can we go? Mm-hmm. How far back does, you know, your grandmother asking your weight? Was there something before that? You know, mm-hmm. and nothing is insignificant. Anything that you remember is absolutely valid and significant to this. So that's the first thing I ask. Because I think often we don't realize how deeply rooted and far back these issues go. These things go. Um, so I ask them to do that. Then I ask them to explore how their shame manifests itself inwardly. So this is the way we talk to ourselves. Um, I call it a little troll voice. I love it. You call right? it the troll, and I have, I have my listeners know I call it my tribunal of assholes. There you go. That's exactly it, right? That little voice in the back of your head that says, oh, my God, this outfit is terrible. I can't possibly go out looking like this. Um, I'm going out for lunch with my girlfriends. I don't what want to order thinking? a salad, but why did you share you better? That? Yes, right, exactly. All those little things that say like you're not good enough. Yeah, um, you're not skinny enough. Mm-hmm. You're not beautiful enough. It'll never you're not happen. Smart enough. It'll never happen. Unlovable. That's a big mm-hmm. one. Unlovable. Um, so that's the next part of it. Then I ask my clients to explore how their shame manifests itself physically. So this is a big one. Um, I think a lot of people suffer from perfectionism, mm-hmm. right? Hair has to be such just so. Dinner has to be on the table. Especially moms. We're so hard on ourselves, right? We have people over and we're like, everything has to be spotless. Why? Nobody lives like that. No, I haven't had people over <laughs> in months. Isn't that crazy? Nobody lives like that, though. Nobody expects your house to be perfection. Not everybody wants to make homemade muffins. No. Right? Oh, my God. That's not everybody's thing. The one photo thing I did with Sabrina, which actually my – the photographer was amazing. Everyone look up Hello Pinecone because she was so cool with Sabrina. And she made it so natural and relaxed. And it's the pictures that are on her website. Um, there's a picture of her eating a muffin and it's totally from the grocery store down the street. Like I put out a th- thing of muffins and I was like, this is such BS. Like store-bought muffins, man. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you because that's not your thing and that's okay. No. It doesn't have to be your thing. No. Right? Right. Right. Totally. Okay. So we do these things, right? Where right. we're like, oh, I can't bring store-bought muffins and right. my floors have to be clean. And I'm going to tell a little story here. I had the audacity to host a mom's night at my house. Amazing. And uh, I had everybody over, and I was thinking, yeah, you know, potluck, bring some wine, we'll have a good time. And I put out paper plates and plastic cups and plastic cutlery. Well, wouldn't you know that two years later, the parents are still talking about how I had the audacity to use paper plates. Wait, they didn't like it? Not all of them. Not all of them. There are a couple of parents in there that could not believe that I didn't use China. See? For a mom's life. Well, probably because they heard you say that to live life on purpose, you should use your best china. (laughs) Just kidding. Yeah, you know, and I do believe that. But at the same (laughs) time, I don't want to do all those dishes. No, 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 no. Right? I'm not going to spend the time doing those dishes. And so we actually don't live with good china. Right. I have mm, eight plates. Right. Because that's all we need. Exactly. I'm kind of a bit of a minimalist. I don't like to have a lot of stuff. Yeah. And uh, 
I've actually gotten rid of all that stuff because it doesn't go in the dishwasher. (laughs) Right. Right. And the, for the parents that were thinking like, oh man, I can't believe she brought out the plastic cutlery. Uh, I bet there were just as many moms that were so relieved. You know, more. There were more moms that were relieved and told me what a great time they had. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I had fun and I didn't have to think about the dishes and I had, mm. didn't have to think about washing an extra wine glass because so-and-so didn't have one. And I, I didn't think about any of that. I had such a great time. Awesome. And okay. that's living life on purpose. I right. purposefully put out plastic because I didn't want to be cleaning dishes. I didn't want to be yeah. spending the night making sure everybody was, I know, had a glass and had, you know, I didn't want to do that. No. I want to fully enjoy myself. Love it. Okay. So I talk about how shame manifests itself physically. So this is the next Mm -hmm. one where I ask you, when you're lying in bed at night, what is keeping you up? What Mm -hmm. kind of lists are you making? Mm -hmm. And are they necessary? Mm -hmm. Are you stressing after dinner because the kids need that bath every night? Are you stressing because people are coming over and the house has to be pristine? Right? So all the ways that we that we act as perfectionists, all the ways in which we put all these I shoulds onto ourselves that are not really expectations of anybody else but ourselves. So then the next step is to explore in what ways your shame manifests itself externally. Um, and you write that, you know, do you judge the clothes that other people wear? Is it because you feel shameful about your body and therefore you do not feel comfortable wearing the types of things you are judging? Um, you say you used to judge people for taking up space. Yes, uh, absolutely. I, I used to get really upset when people took up more space than 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 I allowed myself to. Um that whole business of trying to disappear into the background, mm-hmm. uh, with that comes along a need to make yourself smaller. Mm-hmm. A need to sit with your legs as closed as you can mm-hmm. and to cross your arms over your lap. And to, for me, I would hunch my shoulders and I would just make myself so small, as small as I could at 280 pounds. Um, and that would also be the way that you would express your shame physically. Yes, that would be absolutely to another way, the way yeah. we sit um yeah, the way we show up in the world every mm-hmm. day. So so how do you project your shame externally? Externally. And then what's the next step? Yeah. So the next step is to change the conversation. Mm-hmm. And part of this is our internal conversation, how we speak to ourselves. And some of this is the outward conversation. And this is something that I don't talk about in that post that you're that you're looking at. Um the way we talk about others to each other, right? So in some cases, um, I feel like I'm transported back to high school where women are about each other and talking behind each other's backs. Mm -hmm. And I find myself constantly just pulling away from that. That's not something that I try not to take part in. Um, But it's hard sometimes. Right? It's so hard sometimes not to judge other people. And it feels like a way of relating and commiserating, and that's where it can get seductive. Yep. 
And is it because you feel like you're a part of a tribe then? Yes. If you're both like talking about this other thing, like we're not that. And and so that's where, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they talk about how that's like a, you know, it's a trick we use for bonding. And so what are yeah. other tricks instead that we can use for bonding? Like maybe figuring out more about each other. Yeah. Um, I think I think that I have found a great group of women in the fitness industry. And, you know, we like to commiserate over our similarities, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about everything under the sun and how you're not alone. And and so I would encourage everybody out there to to try to find a different way of bonding with with other women. Um, because the other part of this is that this this way that we talk about other people to bond, it's also a way to make ourselves feel a little better. And that part of our brain that judges others is doubly hard on ourselves and judges us. Mm-hmm. And so we spend all our time thinking, I'm not worthy, I'm not this, I'm not that. But if we can shut down that part of our brain completely, then that shame and that guilt it will slowly dissipate. That's so powerful. And I, and I think about all the times that I've been called out for being critical towards my husband. And, and I'm not even really aware of it because mm-hmm. I've been so judgmental towards myself. Yep. And that when I'm in a better place with myself, I'm just so much just such a better partner and everyone else does so much better right mm-hmm. i think that moms really need to own the power that they have within their home that we we set the bar it's like always it's not no surprise that like after i have my monthly mom group with jennifer waldberger then the next morning sabrina's always such a delight that's no surprise. She didn't go to the mom group meeting. But, like, I'm in a different place. And so she meets me there. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, thank you so much for coming on. For listeners in the L.A. area and also just listeners who want to learn more about Selena, uh, go to swimtoselena.com. She has her list of classes up. You can also go to her uh, nutrition and fitness blog and personal blog. Um selenawillows.com. Thank you so much for coming on and and bearing with my uh, laryngitis. (laughs) I had so much fun, Ellie. It was absolute pleasure. Okay, everybody. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, itunes.com backslash Atomic Moms. You can go to our website, atomicmoms.com to stream the episode. I've been having so much fun talking with you all on social media. Go to our Facebook page, just search Atomic Moms, Twitter and Instagram at Atomic Moms. And until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms. Mm